Welcome to Bare Roots, the podcast that unearths the truth. Allegedly. We're your hosts. I'm Alina. And I'm Shannon. Hello, everyone. Today we have a fun episode for you all. We are going to dive into a powerful family that you may know of called the Rockefellers. Hmm, does that ring a bell? So this one is a very important family and Shannon and I really wanted to talk about this and we're going to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly about this family and, you know, see if you guys knew anything about this because really they dominate the U.S. They really have their hands in everything from the oil industry, banking to Wall Street, higher education, medical research and the arts. The Rockefellers have an unquestionable impact on the spheres in which they work. So today... There are still a lot of residues of criticism surrounding the family, and we're going to dive into that today. Shannon, how are you doing today? Excited for today's episode? (laughs) Yes, I am. Yeah, I didn't really know much about the Rockefellers. I definitely remember learning about them in history class in high school and the, like, was it the Sherman Antitrust Act Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Standard Oil Company, definitely remember hearing that learning about monopolies, stuff like that. But we definitely went into more detail researching this. Exactly. And if you guys are interested in this kind of topic, we can also cover other families that are super powerful. And I think this is a nice twist compared to like the Kennedy family. This one is definitely different, but in the same light almost, but almost secretive, not secretive. I don't know. They seem more low key, right? But they're everywhere. Right. Yeah. You don't, they're not flashy. Mm -hmm. I definitely don't think they're flashy. And they definitely, I was reading something about how they don't have as many, you know, because the Kennedys, like we've discussed, they've had so many tragedies and the Rockefellers definitely don't have that many, but they're equally powerful, but they're just not in the public eye. And Mm -hmm. they claim that it's because of the way that they raise their kids and being hard workers and all of that. They try not to make them just rich snob kids. I don't know, but we'll go into it. Yeah, exactly. Like very much behind the scenes type of family. Right. Like you just, you hear about the thought, the like patriarch, John D. Rockefeller. And then you don't really hear anything about the rest of them, but it's a full-on family. And I also read that they have one of their like keys for success that they claim is that they always have family meetings twice a year. And once you turn 21 in the family, you're invited to the family meeting. And it's like a hundred people now because there are so many, there's like, I don't know. I think they said yeah. something like 200 descendants of John D. Rockefeller. And so a hundred of them get together, have lunch and talk about like the state of the family. And I guess that's a secret to success. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Wild. Imagining. I wonder if there's a rule where you have to be an, a family member by blood. Like, could you be married into it and be invited no. to this? So apparently they said they always like to make, well, this, this is from them, but they like <laughs> to, uh, you don't have to be related by blood. You can be married in. It's really important to make sure that everybody feels like a part of the family and they're on the same moral track and on like the philanthropic track. And if you have an interest that you really want to pursue, you have to like bring it up to the family and be like, hey, should we put our money towards this? And everybody decides. So they just kind of work it out that way. 
I just don't know what to think. Like a part of me is in awe because man, they really know how to manage a group of people. Mm-hmm. And well, they're execute all business that really men. well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, how do you keep everyone in line, but also allow this creative freedom? Like, right. I guess money is the answer, huh? <laughs> <laughs> they're a family of managers and they just manage, manage each other very well, apparently. <laughs> apparently. Yeah. So today we are going to talk about the head honcho, John D. Rockefeller, and then we'll dive into the criticisms, but also some of the light I guess you could say the positives about him. So he's a very controversial man. And then we also want to talk about the generations after that uh, briefly and just kind of explain the more recent impact that they're making today. Great. Okay. Let's get into it. So early life and I guess life in general, John D. Rockefeller, he was born in 1839 and he lived to 1937. So almost 100 years old. Can you imagine living from 1839 to 1937? You've seen the Civil War. It is wild. You've seen the First World War. You've done all of the industrial stuff. Crazy. Yeah, insane. And also, I remember reading some of their other generations, whatever grandsons, I'm not sure who, but this family lives a long time. Oh, really? Yeah, like there was another one that hit 100. I'm like, my goodness. (laughs) So John D. Rockefeller, he, of course, is the founder of the Standard Oil Company and became one of the world's wealthiest men and a major philanthropist. And I believe they are the first. He was the first American billionaire. Hmm, Exciting. But he started at humble roots. So he was born into a poor family, and that family moved from Richford, New York, to Cleveland, Ohio. And I found out, interestingly enough, his father was a con artist. He was a snake oil salesman who traveled around uh, pretending to be deaf and mute to sell miracle remedies. Wow. Yeah. Who knew? I mean, apparently he that's where he got his business salesman techniques from but uh yeah father was a little bit of a shady character he also pretended to be a doctor at another point in life and he had multiple mistresses so i mean all around not the best (laughs) but john d rockefeller he embarked on a lot of business ventures during his teen years this is a guy with ambition you know if nothing else he has ambition from a friend from a early early age he founded a commission merchant company that dealt with meat hay and grains and by the end of the first year the business had grossed four hundred and fifty thousand dollars imagine making almost a half a million dollars but this is like 18 i don't even know like 45 like that is Mm -hmm. a lot in today's money imagine back then (laughs) not 1845 but yes (laughs) Whatever year, you know, he was not this. six. <laughs> 1850? <laughs> 1860? Man, that's a lot. That is a ton. And he had a really good gut for business and he sensed the oil boom. So John decided to go into his next venture. He opened up a refinery, an oil refinery near Pittsburgh in 1863. And within just two years, it had become the largest in the area. And then in 1870, he established Standard Standard Oil Company, which by the early 1880s controlled 
some 90% of the U.S. refineries and pipelines. He even started creating partnerships with the railroad because that makes obvious sense. You know, you want, you got the oil, you got the, he's got mines, you know, like he can do the railroad. So he has partnerships with railroad companies in order to transport the oil as economically as possible while buying up all all the pipelines and oil terminals. Yeah. And it's like, you look at this man and you're like, wow, he was so lucky, but it does take a great amount of risk to also bet on this oil thing being a huge boom. Obviously the reward was tremendous, but I feel like that's a lot of similarities in all of these like millionaires or entrepreneurs. It's that Mm -hmm. they just like have a hunch on something that's going to become big. And then sure enough, it does. Right. There's some right place, right time. Like if he was born in a different exactly. era, like he hit the oil industry right when he needed to. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to think about if he was born at a different time, we wouldn't, we might not know about him. Exactly. It's like partial genius on his part, but partial era that he was born in, you know? Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's obviously, um, it's pretty brave to take a risk like that because oh, nobody else yeah. did, you know? Exactly. There's no guarantee. And also he could have even taken the risk. Yeah, sure. The oil might have been huge back then, but could his company be successful? Right. Too. Like that's another element of it. So many things. Yeah. It's definitely very smart. Mm -hmm. So as it goes for family, John married Laura Celestia Spellman. And her father was a prosperous merchant, politician, and abolitionist active in the Underground Railroad. And they ended up having five children, four daughters, three of whom survived until adulthood, and one son. So that's kind of where we get the family tree from. He has the one son, four daughters. Yeah. And it trickles down from there. Exactly. And that one son is obviously super important in terms of keeping the family name. Right. So let's dive into the controversial part of uh, John Rockefeller. There's definitely a lot of criticism surrounding his name, and it all begins with the Standard Oil. So essentially, the way that he was able to become successful was that he was able to combine a bunch of divisions and then put them all under his enterprise. So he was able to consolidate everything under his name. And essentially, long story short, a monopoly. Right. And that is how he was able to gain all of his success and he was able to oversee everything. But this did make Congress. So politicians definitely took notice. I'm sure there were complaints along the way saying like, is this fair? Is this ethical? What does this mean? Is this legal? So critics accused Rockefeller of engaging in unethical practices such as predatory pricing, which basically just means the pricing of any goods or services at such a low level that other suppliers cannot compete and are forced to leave the market. So with him having the advantage of basically acquiring all these little guys to join him, he was able to have such a low price that other people couldn't compete with. And also to colluding with railroads to eliminate his competitors in order to gain a monopoly in the industry. So he's definitely making some business decisions to went out over everybody else. And critics thought that the methods John employed were 
really immoral and also ran against something else and that it was not just that they were pretty grim in terms of getting the outcomes that he wanted and getting money. Some critics in Congress suggested very strongly that by creating an effective monopoly, John Rockefeller was actually undermined competition in the United States as well. So this is a huge issue in terms of the whole idea of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if he's able to monopolize everything, then this, it's not just about, oh, John Rockefeller is getting all the money and he's just dominating and he's making so much that we're jealous of him kind of situation. It's like, is this now, what's the word? Impacting, I guess you could say, the ideology of capitalism. Right. It's not really capitalism anymore if there's only one guy at the top. Exactly. And competition is to benefit all. And that's kind of like the whole idea of it all. So if you're taking out the competition, then what are you doing? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people had these thoughts. And that's really how Congress started getting into it. Um, It wasn't like people were like, man, this man's making millions, like take him down. It was more of that idea. And that this monopoly was basically really bad for America and they wanted to respond to that. So they did. And that is when Congress introduced the Sherman Antitrust Act, which Shannon, you and I both learned in 1890, making any attempt to monopolize commerce in the U.S. illegal. And I mean, even being in business school, this thing is drilled into your head. I feel like I only know one business law and that is the Sherman Antitrust Act. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't make a monopoly. (laughs) Exactly. Like number one, you can't create a monopoly. By 1892, the Ohio Supreme Court ruled the Standard Oil was in violation of state law, causing John Rockefeller to dissolve the company and hand over management to each of like the smaller groups. Although... What happened was the company's hierarchy, essentially like the centralization was actually able to remain intact with the control of all the divisions still being in the hands of a board run by John himself. So he was still in the game and it took literally nine years later for him to basically take in all of these companies and form one group. So again, taking them all, monopolizing. And then finally, Congress had to come in again and re-intervene in 1911, forcing it to dissolve once more. So by 1911, Supreme Court was like, listen, we understand that you want to dominate and make monopolies, but we made that illegal. And not only that, but we are also suing you for that. The standard oil is in violation of antitrust laws that we created because of you. And because of that, the monopoly was broken up into 34 separate entities, which actually are some companies that we know today, ExxonMobil, Chevron, Amico, which is quite interesting how they were all able to become their own entities from the dissolvement of his standard oil. So the individual pieces of the company were worth more than the whole. And as shares of the individual companies doubled and tripled in value in their early years, Rockefeller became the country's first billionaire with a fortune worth nearly 2% of an entire American economy. Imagine. Absolutely insane. So the government was like, hey, no, you can't have a monopoly. You got to break those up. And he's like, all right. 
and he had shares of all this company, all these companies, and now they're separate companies. They can kind of grow independently, and they're all growing like crazy. So he just got more money. Like he actually benefited from being forced to break up his company. Insane. It just shows you how investing is so important, people. Like you can literally <laughs> do nothing, and it's a passing income. Like he is just absolutely doing nothing but just sitting there making millions and millions, turning it into billions. Absolutely insane. And I think that's, no, never mind. I was going to say, I think that's still how his family is getting money. Like they don't really mm-hmm. have a, you know, they don't have an oil company anymore. It's just yeah. that they keep getting money from these dividends or whatever. I don't know. We yeah. can cut that out because I don't really know exactly the. No, I feel like you are, you are right. Because it's like, everybody's just doing philanthropic. Yeah. Stuff. Like they have so much <laughs> like- time on their hands. <laughs> Yeah, like nobody really has like something true for themselves. Definitely old money. So, of course, due to all of this criticism, people are going to comment. And technically, if you look at it in the context of the late 19th century, everybody was doing it. It was just that Rockefeller was doing it way more successfully than everybody else. And it really was the age of the robber baron. So, it's the wild west, like everything is new, the economic growth is there, and America is changing. So, uh, you know, there's no rules. So the fact that he was able to, I don't even want to say found loopholes, but like, sort of, he did, I guess you could say it It wasn't stopped until they figured out what he was doing. Right, like he created the problem that needed to be stopped. So there wasn't the problem beforehand. (laughs) Or I guess there was, but, you know, nobody didn't garner any attention because nobody was making as much money as he was. Exactly, exactly. And some people also accuse him of, like, tax evasion. So there's that front. But really, it's the monopoly thing that really is what people talk about. And I feel like you kind of have to be ruthless in order to survive. So if there are no rules, then it's game time, I suppose. Yeah, especially back then. Yeah. So on the flip side of that, people find, so people either find him controversial and that was ruthless in his business strategy, but people can also say like, hey, he was also really charitable and philanthropic. So he's not that bad of a guy. Although he is super famous for creating kind of an American economy, he is maybe just as famous for his philanthropic work. He funded the establishment of the University of Chicago and the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, which is now called the Rockefeller University. And a lot of techniques were born from the institution, including the treatment of pneumonia and spinal meningitis, which is cool. And then in 1902, he established the General Education Board in a bid to support education in the U.S. regardless of race, sex, or creed with the emphasis on promoting higher education. So he's also not only is in the medical side, he's in the education side. They started the Rockefeller Foundation in 1913 to quote, promote the well-being of mankind throughout the world, which is kind of weird. That sounds like something that is in the Colorado airport. I don't know why I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) cool. They donated millions to promote education, public health, scientific advancement, the arts, social research, and more. So literally everything is donated to everything. 
he has a strong, and I guess the family still does, have the strong religious core moral belief. Some people say that, you know, he gave away all this money to evade or to elude taxation. But some people will say like, yeah, he was also really religious. And they think that he genuinely did believe that it was kind of like his duty to, as a wealthy man and a Christian, to kind of dispense or disperse his fortune in useful ways. And I thought this was interesting. I don't know if it's 100% true. It is true that his mother was really religious, but apparently he gave 10% of his paycheck to the church, even when he was a nobody. Like his first paycheck he ever got, he still gave 10% to the church, which if that's true, that's really cool that even when Mm -hmm. he was making nothing, he was still giving stuff away or giving money away yeah so that's kind of like in a nutshell what they what he did and what the family does for philanthropic exactly such a complex man not really where your tinfoil hat is at but what do you think of him like do you side more on the critical side do you see him more as this I was gonna say holistic man but not holistic (laughs) (laughs) more of like angel he's got his crystals out (laughs) yeah (laughs) spiritual vibes (laughs) like what is your take on this because I feel like people definitely have mixed opinions yeah I mean I think he was very 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 smart I think he was born in the right time so that he could use his brain to the best ability And I think, yeah, he did ruthless things, but ultimately, I guess I'm just going to compare him to others and just be like, hey, Mm -hmm. at least he did donate millions to other organizations. And even if he didn't do it out of a place of a good heart, at least he did donate the money, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, eh, you know, like at least you're doing something. I can't, I can't blame him. I can't, I guess, demonize him. And I think he's, yeah, I think he was really, really smart. So Mm -hmm. that's my take. How about you? I agree. I think from like a business perspective, there are definitely some things that you're like, okay, that seems like a little ruthless, but then also you can admire like, wow, so ahead of his game, so progressive in just the industry as a whole being a CEO, if you will, and how he really transforms the whole business side of America in general. Uh, I think there's a lot to learn from him um, and a lot to, you know, criticize as well. When it does come to the whole like charitable stuff that he does, I mean, you have to give it to him. I feel like there's not a lot of people who are millionaires. I mean, they might donate here and there, but he really did spread the wealth and he made a huge impact. And I think whether or not like where it came from he definitely wanted to make some sort of long-lasting impression other than I want to make money yeah yeah that's a good point yeah so I don't know I think if I had to say I would say the good outweighs the bad for John Rockefeller for me okay yeah so we are now going to talk about the next generation. So his kid and then his grandchildren. Uh, and again, talk about where they are now, I suppose you could say, and how they impacted today's world in a more modern era. But first, let's go to the ads.
So as we talked about earlier, he had one son and his name was John Jr. And he was to follow in his father's footsteps. I mean, man, this guy had everything set up, right? He had actually worked at the Standard Oil headquarters and then took a leap of faith and left the business world behind to focus solely on philanthropy, which I just feel like is such a son of a huge like oil tycoon type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I just have this luxury to just be like, I don't want to work. I just want to focus on philanthropy stuff. Yeah. Your dad has so much money that you can afford to do that. (laughs) Right. That your job is to give money away. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I guess he's trying to be nice, so I can't fault him for that. (laughs) Right, right. So despite his altruism, public opinion actually began to turn in 1913 when around 9,000 coal miners working for the Rockefeller-owned Colorado Fuel, an iron company, decided to have a strike demanding for better wages, hours, and accommodation. So this is the height of that kind of stuff where people are asking their bosses for better not only better wages, but also better conditions. Mm -hmm. So this is definitely a turn of the time. The affair soon turned violent with workers' families evicted from their homes and forced to live in these makeshift tents during a harsh winter. I mean, this is Colorado. Like this, it gets chilly up there. (laughs) But yeah, it gets crazy. Yeah, this is wild. So Alina put down those bullet points and I was like, oh, what? Because by 1914, More than 40 people, including 11 children, were shot and killed by private security forces. What? Yeah. (laughs) Excuse me? Is this Waco? Like, what? What? (laughs) Yeah, this is 1914. So I dug into this a little bit. And um, have you ever heard of the Colorado Coalfield War? No. Yeah. So it lasted from September 1913 to April 1914. Some people say December of 1914. Like we mentioned, there was a strike against the poor labor conditions in Colorado's coal mines. It kind of got crazy. <laughs> so <laughs> there were they were striking the workers, and in April, and it lasted for months, months, and National Guard was getting called in. And people are living in tents. There's one event in April called the Ludlow Massacre, which soldiers from the Colorado National Guard and private guards employed by the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company attacked a tent colony. This is a tent colony of people of roughly 1,200 striking coal miners and their families. So we got families living in tents because they are striking. And... The National Guard comes in, and this is, oh, what month, Alina? April. Of course. April 20th of 1914. I'm surprised it's not April 19th, but the fact that it's the 20th, I mean, like, it just goes to show you people, like, there is something funky about this week. (laughs) 100%. And we didn't even plan it this way, people. We, I know we were just on a whole rant of April, and then... This just came out of the woodwork. This just fits so perfectly with our April theme. Right. So approximately 21 people, including minors, wives, and children, were killed. So that was the Ludlow Massacre, which was just one massacre in the war. A war that I have never heard about ever before. (laughs) On American soil. Yeah. It was also called like the Colorado Civil War. Wild stuff. And they're saying that from September to April, an estimated 
69 to 199 I don't know why they didn't just put 200 69 to Mm -hmm. 200 people were killed during the strike what excuse me and historians have called it the deadliest strike in history in the United States and basically what what happened after the fact was that it led to better child labor laws and an eight-hour workday which is so thank you for the nine to five for like literally giving up like sacrificing your life so i can literally work nine to five insane apparently there's a monument in colorado to this and yeah it's wild but how this relates to the rockefellers is that blame was placed on john jr John D's son and he was later testifying to Congress and activists claimed that he actually ordered the massacre to happen but he said he had no knowledge of the animosity he didn't know and it just kind of like ruined his reputation because people were basically saying that he called in the troops to take care of these strikers and then after the fact, he didn't get charged with anything, but his reputation was tarnished a bit. So he tried to start rebuilding his reputation by, you know, more philanthropic work. So including the world famous Rockefeller Center, he donated the land that would be later transformed into the United Nations headquarters, and he helped restore colonial Williamsburg. Yeah, I mean, when I think of Rockefeller, the first thing I think of, and almost the only thing I think of, other than the Standard Oil, is Rockefeller Center, where the Christmas tree goes up. Right, yeah. No, I was thinking about the oysters as well. (laughs) (laughs) But really, that strike is absolutely insane. How did we not know about this? A legit civil war, kind of, sort of, on American soil. I mean, it has such a big impact in, like, our labor laws and all this stuff. But, but doesn't it give you such it. Waco vibes? Like the troops are called into really these people does. in tents, children being killed by the National Guard. What is going on? Yeah. I mean, the PR team for the Rockefellers are clearly very good. Yes. Yeah. So that's John Jr. That's right, right after John D. Rockefeller. And then we go into his great, or sorry, his grandchildren. So we're going to just kind of rattle it off on the impacts that they've led and they did have so john jr did have a daughter and she did do some philanthropic work but it's really his sons uh that ended up making not not a more lasting impression but just more stuff that we can like commonly associate with so first we have the eldest of the brothers and that's john the third and he really divide, devoted his whole life to foreign affairs and philanthropy And he developed a real deep interest in Asia that actually resulted in the creation of the Asia Society and Council on Economic and Cultural Affairs. He was also responsible for the Population Council, which was the first organization to bring issues of overpopulation to the forefront. And he even created the Lincoln Center, which is now the world's leading performing arts center in New York. And it's funny because... I don't think I would have really picked up on the Lincoln Center, but I recently just watched on Disney Plus. It was um, the Nutcracker, the ballet, and they were talking, <laughs> like, oh my God, I get to perform at the Lincoln Center. So I just thought that was really cool. I'm like, oh wow, I had no idea that he was the one who created that. 
And he also founded and supported a number of NGOs, which is like non-government organizations before he died. So he definitely did a lot on his resume. So then the second son, his name is Nelson, and he was someone the most high profile of the siblings. And he kind of always had plans to become a president from childhood. He would always say that when he was a little kid. And he worked at Chase Manhattan Bank, but then he, but afterwards he entered politics and he transformed the New York skyline through numerous construction projects uh, while he was serving as governor for New York in four terms between 1953 and 1973. And he actually even served as vice president under President Gerald Ford between 1974 and 77. Like what, how did, I mean, granted, VPs really don't get a lot of attention, but I just find that absolutely insane. I, when I picture the Rockefellers, I picture more business side. So like him being part of the Chase Bank, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Even the governor, I'm like, okay, like I'll give you some kudos, but he was a VP. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, insane. Next we have Lawrence and he also had a big impact in New York, but through Wall Street. So he was really a pioneer in the venture capitalism world. It's just kind of ironic that his dad was the opposite, if you will, which is Monopoly. (laughs) So during his decades on the New York Stock Exchange, Lawrence invested in hundreds of startups that focused on electronics, aviation, computers, and biotechnology. So he is the tech man. He, similar to his grandfather, he had a big, or he had a talent for sensing the next big thing. And so it's actually proven that in his investing portfolio, if you will, he actually had early investments in Apple and Intel, which is crazy. And I mean, what a great investment, right? Uh, He was a keen environmentalist and really wanted to help establish and expanding national parks throughout the U.S. from Wyoming to Hawaii. So love a nature guy, too. (laughs) So great. (laughs) And then we have Winthrop, who was actually one of the more modest of the children. And he didn't just go in saying that, you know, I'm the heir to this or not the heir, but I am one of the sons of one of the largest families or the most wealthy family in the country. He instead, he started his career as an apprentice working in his family's oil fields. So that's kind of wild. He was working literally in the oil fields. Yeah. He eventually went into politics and became famous for cultural and economic change in the state of Arkansas because he was the governor there for a few years. And he introduced the first minimum wage and freedom of information law, which tightened insurance legislation. Which is kind of funny. It's like all the brothers are like out here, city boys in New York. And clearly he's the country one being working in the oil fields. And he's the governor of Arkansas. Like, how did you land yourself there? Right. (laughs) Definitely a country boy, sounds like. So the youngest brother we have is David, and he was definitely a a powerful force on Wall Street, and he had a lot of respect and knowledge and education regarding economics and getting himself involved there. But like so many during that time, as a result of America going into war, 
he decided to like forego the use of his family name. Like he wasn't going to follow in the family footsteps and he wanted to enlist. So he actually enlisted as a private, which is like a bottom rank. And he, on his own terms, rose to the rank of a captain during his service in the U.S. Army. And after the war, David joined a company in which he would stay throughout his entire professional career, which is, you might have known about it, Chase Manhattan Bank, you know, Chase Bank that we all know today. So he was able to prove his worth, really step up to the plate. And eventually, um, towards the end of his career, he became the sole CEO in 1969 of Chase Bank, which is amazing. And during this time, he was able to grow Chase Bank from 11 to 73 uh, foreign branches with the Chase Bank becoming the first Western bank to open branches in China and Russia. So it really secured like the global institution. He's really expanding beyond the U.S. And... I thought this was interesting. When David joined the Chase Bank in 1946, it was worth about $4.8 billion. And then by 1981, it was worth $76.2 billion. Wow. wow, wow. So these are all of, I shouldn't say all of them, right? Because there's so many of them, but the top three generations after Well, I guess two, technically, if you will, after Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller. So there are questions to be asked about how one man or the family can possibly accumulate such incredible wealth as those of the Rockefellers. It's really impressive with what they have been able to do with not only their family name, but just how they're able to branch out into so many different divisions and conquer so many different industries and not only conquer them but improve them to like what we know today so he really is john d rockefeller the embodiment of the american dream so through his business and through his philanthropic efforts quite an interesting man and his family definitely lives up to their their family name yeah i looked up the america's most their wealthiest families and they're actually 43 number 43 out of 50 Hmm. which was lower than I thought, but that is interesting. I guess certainly, yeah, certainly still very, very, very wealthy (laughs) beyond what we can even possibly imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Like imagine if we had just a 10th of that. Right. Absolutely (laughs) insane. So uh, we hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. This was a fun one. Again, if you're interested in learning about other powerful families in the U.S., we can definitely dive into that um, later on. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on any of the platforms that you listen to, like Spotify, Apple, and also be sure to follow us on Instagram at Pod, B-A-R-E, and tell your friends to follow us. We have so many great things coming down the pipeline, so be sure to stay tuned. Thank you. Alrighty, everyone. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.